the National Archives podcast series. Highlights of security service files released at the National Archives. Presented by Professor Christopher Andrew. Uh, I'm Christopher Andrew, and I was official historian of uh, MI5 and much enjoyed looking at the files which have just been released. The topic with the largest number of files in the latest MI5 released to the National Archives is the Petrov Affair, one of the great intelligence co-celebres of the early Cold War. In 1954, Vladimir Petrov, the head of the KGB station in Canberra, became the most senior Soviet intelligence officer to defect to the West since the Second World War. Immediately after his defection, his wife Evdokia Petrova, who also worked for the KGB, was ordered back to Moscow and bundled on board a plane at Sydney Airport by Soviet security. Newspaper photos in Britain as well as Australia show her in obvious distress with one of her shoes missing on the airport tarmac with grim-faced security officers on either side. When the plane stopped at Darwin to refuel, she was able to escape from her escorts with the help of Australian officials, given political asylum and reunited with her husband. The lead role in the debriefing of the Petrovs after their defection, much of which is in the newly released files, was taken by a Russian-speaking MI5 officer, striking evidence of MI5's close working relationship with Australian intelligence. The intelligence alliance which lay at the heart of the British-American special relationship is by now well known. In some ways, however, the less well-known special relationship between British and Australian intelligence was even closer, and there's important new material in the declassified files on how that special relationship evolved at the beginning of the Cold War. The crucial turning point was Signals Intelligence, codenamed Venona, intercepted Soviet intelligence messages, mostly from the Second World War, decrypted from the later 1940s onwards. The broader impact of Venona is covered in one of the chapters of my history of MI5, the defense of the realm. Ten of the newly declassified files, beginning at KV4, stroke 450, show its impact on Australia's relations with Britain. The Venona decrypts reveal the existence of Russian agents in the Australian Department of External Affairs who were passing British as well as Australian top-secret documents to Moscow. Clement Attlee, the British Labour Prime Minister, authorised MI5 to warn Ben Chifley, the Australian Labour Prime Minister. The Director General of MI5, Sir Percy Silito, described by Chifley as, quote, a fellow with a bloody silly name, and a future DG, Roger Hollis, travelled to Canberra. At first they were reluctant to let Chifley in on the Venona secret and tried, unsuccessfully, to pretend that the intelligence on the Soviet penetration of external affairs came from a Soviet defector. But they finally admitted that the intelligence came from code-breaking. One of the newly released files, KV4-456, has top-secret correspondence between Attlee and Chifley, as well as reports from Australia by Roger Hollis. One of the consequences of the MI5 visit was the Chifley government's decision to improve its counter-espionage by setting up a new security service, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, or ASIO, modelled on MI5. Attlee agreed to a request from Chifley 
to station an MI5 officer in Australia to advise the infant ASIO. In the next two files, KV4-457 and 458, there is correspondence from Attlee to US President Harry Truman seeking to reassure him on the improved state of Australian security. Venona revealed that virtually all Soviet espionage in Australia was organized by a leading Communist Party official, Wally Clayton, codenamed Claude, described by one member of his spy ring in external affairs as, quote, a shadowy, a shadowy figure who wouldn't look at me when I was reporting. The files on the debriefing of the Petrovs overlap with similar files in the Australian archives. At the time, they made a major impact in London as well as Canberra. They provided the first hard evidence that Guy Burgess and Donald McLean, two of the Soviet spies now known as the Cambridge Five, who had disappeared from the Foreign Office in 1951, were now in Moscow. The impact of the Petrov's debriefing was all the greater because of the dearth in 1954 of intelligence from other Soviet sources. Britain and the United States had no spies of any significance in Moscow. Despite Venona, no current high-grade Soviet ciphers could be broken, and the age of the high-altitude spy plane and the spy satellite had yet to dawn. Evdokia Petrova's intelligence has attracted less attention than her husband's, but as she later revealed in their memoirs, she had worked in Soviet signals intelligence, dressing as unattractively as possible before World War II, in order to avoid the pressing invitations to weekend orgies, which the head of the unit extended to attractive female staff. How very different from Bletchley Park. Nowadays, it's often supposed that the KGB concentrated solely on intelligence from spies of agents. In reality, it derived much of its intelligence from code-breaking. Petrova was able to supply fragmentary but important intelligence on Soviet cryptanalysis and some of the ciphers it had broken. The Petrov affair generated one of the great conspiracy theories of post-war Australian politics. The claim that the Petrov's defection had somehow been engineered by the right-wing Prime Minister Sir Robert Menzies to discredit the Labour Party and ensure its defeat at the 1954 election, which it duly lost. Only the most hardened conspiracy theorist, however, is likely to find any evidence for this claim in the declassified MI5 files. The later revelation of Sir Roger Hollis's role in the creation of ASIO, on which the latest batch of files provides authoritative information, generated a further widespread conspiracy theory. The maverick retired MI5 officer and conspiracy theorist Peter Wright, who moved to Australia in the 1980s, was obsessed by the bizarre belief that Hollis was a Soviet agent. And that was one of the central themes in his memoirs, Spycatcher, which became a bestseller largely as a result of the British government's unsuccessful attempts to ban it. If Wright was correct, and many wrongly believed he was, then a Soviet agent, Roger Hollis, had helped to found ASIO. There is, of course, far more to the latest MI5 releases than the Petrov affair. Some researchers will be more interested in the files on German and Soviet intelligence officers and agents, real and suspected, of which there are some good examples in the very helpful National Archives press pack and introduction to the releases. There are colourful details in KV3-414, stroke 
of revelations by captured German agents of post-war plans by the Nazi Sicherheitsdienst to use poison against their wartime enemies. Nowadays, it's easy to regard such schemes as impossibly far-fetched. But at the time, it was reasonable to believe that after the Allied victory, there would remain a dangerous post-war Nazi underground, which would continue a secret war. And given the use of poison gas to kill millions in the death camps, it was also reasonable to believe that some of the schemes revealed by the captured agents to poison the water supply and food products ranging from sausages to Nescafe might pose a real threat. One of the captured German agents, the extremist Breton nationalist Olivier Mordrel, whose file is KB2-3410, claimed that he had attended a secret conference near Munich in the last weeks of the war, chaired by an SS Oberkuppenführer, which discussed plans to create post-war, quote, world disorder. In the event, however, the main, less sensational terrorist threat faced by MI5 in the aftermath of World War II came not from the surprisingly feeble Nazi underground, but from the Zionist extremists of the Irgun, led by the future Israeli Prime Minister, Menachem Begin, and the Stern Gang, the last terrorist group which actually called itself terrorist. In 1946, Irgun blew up the headquarters of the British administration in Palestine, the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, then a few months afterwards, the British Embassy in Rome. A year later, a female Stern Gang bomber almost succeeded in blowing up the colonial office in Whitehall, but failed to fuse the bomb correctly. File KV2, stroke 3428, deals with attempts by Zionist extremists to assassinate the British Foreign Secretary, Ernest Bevan, whose attempts to limit Jewish immigration to Palestine had made him deeply unpopular with Zionists. MI5 believed that the most likely moment for an attempt to assassinate Bevan would come during his visit to Egypt in 1946. My history of MI5 gives details of a later letter-bomb campaign, not simply against Bevin, but also against Attlee, Churchill, and other leading British politicians. Though the vast majority of British Zionists had no truck with terrorism, MI5 was so shocked by the post-war terrorist campaigns that its policy until the 1970s was inexcusably, quote, to avoid recruiting Jews, if possible, unless they have very strong qualifications which are necessary for our work, end quote. One of MI5's most distinguished wartime officers, however, had been a Jew, Victor, later Lord Rothschild, who became the victim, like Hollis, of now discredited claims that he had been a Soviet agent. Rothschild founded MI5's first counter-sabotage unit. He owed much of his success in defusing German bombs to the expertise in dissection he had learned as a zoologist at Cambridge University. File KV3-413 reveals that Rothschild also investigated German sabotage operations in the wartime United States after the capture of German saboteurs from a U-boat in 1942. Rothschild reported that it was, quote, only owing to the laziness or stupidity of the American Coast Guards that this submarine was not attacked by USA forces. Though Rothschild believed that other German saboteurs remained at large, they were far less successful than in World War I, when they had blown up a huge munitions dump in New York Harbor. Scattered through the latest MI5 releases are the missing parts 
of some very interesting historical jigsaws which have still not been put completely together. One such jigsaw is the extraordinary group of pre-war communists and left-wing intellectuals, including some Soviet spies, who lived at the heart of Hampstead's chattering classes in Lawn Road flats, the first deck-access flats in Britain. At number seven lived the Soviet illegal Dr. Arnold Deutsch, an Austrian psychologist who recruited all the Cambridge Five and others as Soviet spies. KV2, stroke 3504, reveals that Helga Perl, a German communist suspected of links with Soviet intelligence, lived only three doors away at number four. And we now know that at one point Agatha Christie also owned a nearby flat, though she had nothing to do with Soviet intelligence. As with previous MI5 releases, there are some interesting files on well-known figures who were investigated on suspicion, sometimes short-lived suspicion, of communist or Soviet links. Though they often tell us little of importance about intelligence and national security, there is frequently interesting biographical material. The latest personal files to be released include a file on at least one great original, the American Larry Adler, probably the world's greatest harmonica player, who I first heard many years ago on The Goon Show. While on a tour of Britain early in the Cold War, Adler was called to give evidence in the United States to the notorious House Committee on Un-American Activities. Adler refused to go and stayed in Britain. Though Adler was accused of having uh, a number of uh, communist links in the United States, MI5 concluded unsurprisingly that he presented no threat to national security. The most colourful journalist with a file in the latest releases is Sam White, for many years the Evening Standard's Paris correspondent and the doyen of foreign correspondence at a time when every British newspaper had at least one journalist in Paris. The Times actually had three. White was a larger-than-life character who did most of his reporting to London from the elegant bar of the Hotel Crillon. He was able to draw on a wide range of contacts in areas of Parisian life, ranging from politics to brothels. But White had also been a pre-war member of the Australian Communist Party and, according to his MI5 file, remained in contact with leading communists, at least until the 1950s. There's also, more surprisingly, a file on Jacob Bronowski, one of the most brilliant polymaths of his generation. Though trained as a mathematician, Bronowski is perhaps best remembered nowadays for his groundbreaking 13-part BBC TV documentary series, The Ascent of Man. As a university lecturer in Hull during his early career, Bronowski believed that, quote, it is important that students bring a certain ragamuffin, barefoot irreverence to their studies. They are not here to worship what is known, but to question it. That perhaps helps to explain Bronowski's communist contacts in Hull, which unnecessarily alarmed the local police. As with most MI5 releases, the significance of these files goes far beyond the realm of intelligence history. This time, there's unusually even important new material for the musicologist, a revealing eight-volume file on Alan Bush, an internationally renowned British musician and composer who was also a leading British communist and member of front organisations who travelled frequently to Russia and East Germany. So there's plenty of material in these files, 
for both academic theses and newspaper articles. This podcast was recorded at the National Archives in Kew on the 15th of March 2011. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved. 